Chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Mistakes of Moses by Robert G. Ingersoll. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. Chapter 7, Tuesday. We are next informed by Moses that God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters, and that God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. What did the writer mean by the word firmament? Theologians now tell us that he meant an expanse. This will not do. How could an expanse divide the waters from the waters, so that the waters above the expanse would not fall into and mingle with the waters below the expanse? The truth is that Moses regarded the firmament as a solid affair. It was where God lived and where the water was kept. It was for this reason that they used to pray for rain. They supposed that some angel could with a lever raise a gate and let out the quantity of moisture desired. It was with the water from this firmament that the world was drowned when the windows of heaven were opened. It was in this firmament that the sons of God lived, the sons who saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and took them wives, all of which they chose. The issue of such marriages were giants, and the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Nothing is clearer than that Moses regarded the firmament as a vast material division that separated the waters of the world, and upon whose floor God lived, surrounded by his sons. In no other way could he account for rain. Where did the water come from? He knew nothing about the laws of evaporation. He did not know that the sun wooed with amorous kisses the waves of the sea, and that they clad in glorified mist, rising to meet their lover, were, by disappointment, changed to tears and fell as rain. The idea that the firmament was the abode of the deity must have been in the mind of Moses when he related the dream of Jacob. And he dreamed, and, behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it, and behold the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God. So, when the people were building the tower of Babel, the Lord came down to see the city, and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and nothing will be restrained from them which they imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. The man who wrote that absurd account must have believed that God lived above the earth, in the firmament. The same idea was in the mind of the psalmist when he said that God bowed the heavens and came down. Of course, God could easily remove any person bodily to heaven, as it was but a little way above the earth. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
the accounts in the Bible of the ascension of Elijah, Christ, and St. Paul were born of the belief that the firmament was the dwelling-place of God. It probably never occurred to these writers that, if the firmament was seven or eight miles away, Enoch and the rest would have been frozen perfectly stiff long before the journey could have been completed. Possibly Elijah might have made the voyage, as he was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire by a whirlwind. The truth is that Moses was mistaken, and upon that mistake the Christians located their heaven and their hell. The telescope destroyed the firmament, did away with the heaven of the New Testament, rendered the ascension of our Lord and the assumption of his mother infinitely absurd, crumbled to chaos the gates and palaces of the new Jerusalem, and in their places gave to man a wilderness of worlds. CHAPTER Eight, WEDNESDAY We are next informed by the historian of creation, that after God had finished making the firmament, and had succeeded in dividing the waters by means of an expanse, he proceeded to gather the waters on the earth together in seas, so that the dry land might appear. Certainly the writer of this did not have any conception of the real form of the earth. He could not have known anything of the attraction of gravitation. He must have regarded the earth as flat, and supposed that it required considerable force and power to induce the water to leave the mountains and collect in the valleys. Just as soon as the water was forced to run downhill, the dry land appeared, and the grass began to grow, and the mantles of green were thrown over the shoulders of the hills, and the trees laughed into bud and blossom, and the branches were laden with fruit. And all this happened before a ray had left the quiver of the sun, before a glittering beam had thrilled the bosom of a flower, and before the dawn with trembling hands had drawn aside the curtains of the east, and welcomed to her arms the eager god of day. It does not seem to me that grass and trees could grow and ripen into seed and fruit without the sun. According to the account, all this happened on the third day. Now, if, as the Christians say, Moses did not mean by the word day a period of twenty-four hours, but an immense and almost measureless space of time, and, as God did not, according to this view, make any animals until the fifth day, that is, not for millions of years after he made the grass and trees, for what purpose did he cause the trees to bear fruit? Moses says that God said on the third day, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit-tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. There was nothing to eat this fruit. Not an insect with painted wings sought the honey of the flowers, not a single living, breathing thing upon the earth. Plenty of grass, a great variety of herbs, an abundance of fruit, but not a mouth in all the world. If Moses is right, 
This state of things lasted only two days. But if the modern theologians are correct, it continued for millions of ages. It is now well known that the organic history of the earth can be properly divided into five epochs, the primordial, primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary. Each of these epochs is characterized by animal and vegetable life peculiar to itself. In the first will be found algae and skull-less vertebrates, in the second ferns and fishes, in the third pine forests and reptiles, in the fourth foliaceous forests and mammals, and in the fifth man. How much more reasonable this is than the idea that the earth was covered with grass and herbs and trees loaded with fruit for millions of years before an animal existed. There is, in nature, an even balance forever kept between the total amounts of animal and vegetable life. In her wonderful economy she must form and bountifully nourish her vegetable progeny, twin brother life to her with that of animals. The perfect balance between plant existences and animal existences must always be maintained, while matter courses through the eternal circle, becoming each in turn. If an animal be resolved into its ultimate constituents in a period according to the surrounding circumstances, say of four hours, of four months, of four years, or even of four thousand years, for it is impossible to deny that there may be instances of all these periods during which the process has continued, those elements which assume the gaseous form mingle at once with the atmosphere and are taken up from it without delay by the ever-open mouths of vegetable life. By a thousand pores in every leaf, the carbonic acid which renders the atmosphere unfit for animal life is absorbed, the carbon being separated and assimilated to form the vegetable fiber, which, as wood, makes and furnishes our houses and ships, is burned for our warmth, or is stored up under pressure for coal. All this carbon has played its part, and many parts in its time, as animal existences from monad up to man. Our mahogany of today has been many negroes in its turn, and before the African existed was integral portions of many a generation of extinct species. It seems reasonable to suppose that certain kinds of vegetation and certain kinds of animals should exist together, and that as the character of the vegetation changed, a corresponding change would take place in the animal world. It may be that I am led to these conclusions by total depravity, or that I lack the necessary humility of spirit to satisfactorily harmonize Haeckel and Moses, or that I am carried away with pride, blinded by reason, given over to hardness of heart that I might be damned, but I never can believe that the earth was covered with leaves and buds and flowers and fruits before the sun with glittering spear had driven back the hosts of night. CHAPTER Nine, THURSDAY After the world was covered with vegetation, it occurred to Moses that it was about time to make a sun and moon, 
and so we are told that on the fourth day God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Can we believe that the inspired writer had any idea of the size of the sun? Draw a circle five inches in diameter, and by its side thrust a pin through the paper. The hole made by the pin will sustain about the same relation to the circle that the earth does to the sun. How did he know that the sun was 860,000 miles in diameter, that it was enveloped in an ocean of fire thousands of miles in depth, hotter even than the Christian's hell, over which sweep tempests of flame moving at the rate of 100 miles a second, compared with which the wildest storm that ever wrecked the forests of this world was but a calm? Did he know that the sun, every moment of time, throws out as much heat as could be generated by the combustion of millions upon millions of tons of coal? Did he know that the volume of the earth is less than one millionth of that of the sun? Did he know of the one hundred and four planets belonging to our solar system, all children of the sun? Did he know of Jupiter eighty-five thousand miles in diameter, hundreds of times as large as our earth, turning on his axis at the rate of 25,000 miles an hour, accompanied by four moons, making the tour of his orbit in fifty years, a distance of 3,000 million miles? Did he know anything about Saturn, his rings, and his eight moons? Did he have the faintest idea that all these planets were once part of the sun, that the vast luminary was once thousands of millions of miles in diameter, that Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars were all born before our earth, and that by no possibility could this world have existed three days, nor three periods, nor three good whiles before its source, the sun? Moses supposed the sun to be about three or four feet in diameter, and the moon about half that size. Compared with the earth, they were but simple specks. This idea seems to have been shared by all the inspired men. We find in the book of Joshua that the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. We are told that the sacred writer wrote in common speech, as we do when we talk about the rising and setting of the sun, and that all he intended to say was that the earth ceased to turn on its axis for about a whole day. My own opinion is that General Joshua knew no more about the motions of the earth than he did about mercy and justice. If he had known that the earth turned upon its axis at the rate of a thousand miles an hour, and swept in its course about the sun at the rate of sixty-eight thousand miles an hour, he would have doubled the hailstones spoken of in the same chapter 
that the Lord cast down from the heaven, and allowed the sun and moon to rise and set in the usual way. It is impossible to conceive of a more absurd story than this about the stopping of the sun and moon, and yet nothing so excites the malice of the orthodox preacher as to call its truth in question. Some endeavor to account for the phenomenon by natural causes, while others attempt to show that God could, by the refraction of light, have made the sun visible, although actually shining on the opposite side of the earth. The last hypothesis has been seriously urged by ministers within the last few months. The Rev. Henry M. Morey of South Bend, Indiana, says that the phenomenon was simply optical. The rotary motion of the earth was not disturbed, but the light of the sun was prolonged by the same laws of refraction and reflection by which the sun now appears to be above the horizon when it is really below. The medium through which the sun's rays passed may have been miraculously influenced so as to have caused the sun to linger above the horizon long after its usual time for disappearance. This is the latest and ripest product of Christian scholarship upon this question, no doubt. But still, it is not entirely satisfactory to me. According to the sacred account, the sun did not linger, merely, above the horizon, but stood still in the midst of heaven for about a whole day, that is to say, for about twelve hours. If the air was miraculously changed, so that it would refract the rays of the sun, while the earth turned over as usual for about a whole day, then, at the end of that time, the sun must have been visible in the east, that is, it must by that time have been the next morning. According to this, that most wonderful day must have been at least thirty-six hours in length. We have, first, the twelve hours of natural light, then twelve hours of refracted and reflected light. By that time it would again be morning, and the sun would shine for twelve hours more in the natural way, making thirty-six hours in all. If the Reverend Morey would depend a little less on refraction, and a little more on reflection, he would conclude that the whole story is simply a barbaric myth and fable. It hardly seems reasonable that God, if there is one, would either stop the globe, change the constitution of the atmosphere, or change the nature of light, simply to afford Joshua an opportunity to kill people on that day, when he could just as easily have waited until the next morning. It certainly cannot be very gratifying to God for us to believe such childish things. It has been demonstrated that force is eternal, that it is forever active, and eludes destruction by change of form. Motion is a form of force, and all arrested motion changes instantly to heat. The earth turns upon its axis at about one thousand miles an hour. Let it be stopped, and a force beyond our imagination is changed to heat. It has been calculated that to stop the world would produce as much heat as the burning of a solid piece of coal three times the size of the earth. And yet we are asked to believe that this was done in order that one barbarian might defeat another. 
such stories never would have been written had not the belief been general that the heavenly bodies were as nothing compared with the earth the view of moses was acquiesced in by the jewish people and by the christian world for thousands of years it is supposed that moses lived about fifteen hundred years before christ and although he was inspired and obtained his information directly from god he did not know as much about our solar system as the chinese did a thousand years before he was born the emperor chuen hyo adopted as an epoch a conjunction of the planets mercury mars jupiter and saturn and has been shown by monsieur bailey to have occurred no less than two thousand four hundred and forty nine years before christ the ancient chinese knew not only the motions of the planets but they could calculate eclipses in the reign of emperor chao kang the chief astronomers ho and he were condemned to death for neglecting to announce a solar eclipse which took place in two thousand one hundred sixty nine b c a clear proof that the prediction of eclipses was part of the duty of the imperial astronomers is it not strange that a chinaman should find out by his own exertions more about the material universe than moses could when assisted by its creator about eight hundred years after god gave moses the principal facts about the creation of the heaven and the earth he performed another miracle far more wonderful than stopping the world on this occasion he not only stopped the earth but actually caused it to turn the other way a jewish king was sick and god in order to convince him that he would ultimately recover offered to make the shadow on the dial go forward or backward ten degrees the king thought it was too easy a thing to make the shadow go forward and asked that it be turned back thereupon isaiah the prophet cried unto the lord and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of ahaz i hardly see how this miracle could be accounted for even by refraction and reflection it seems from the account that this stupendous miracle was performed after the king had been cured the account of the shadow going backward is given in the eleventh verse of the twentieth chapter of second kings while the cure is given in the seventh verse of the same chapter and isaiah said take a lump of figs and they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered stopping the world and causing it to turn ten degrees after that seems to have been as the boil was already cured by the figs a useless display of power the easiest way to account for all these wonders is to say that the inspired writers were mistaken in this way a fearful burden is lifted from the credulity of man and he is left free to believe the evidences of his own senses and the demonstrations of science in this way he can emancipate himself from the slavery of superstition the control of the barbaric dead and the despotism of the church only about a hundred years ago buffon the naturalist was compelled by the faculty of theology at paris to publicly renounce fourteen errors in his book on natural history 
because they were at variance with the mosaic account of creation. The Pentateuch is still the scientific standard of the Church, and ignorant priests, armed with that, pronounce sentence upon the vast accomplishments of modern thought. End of chapters 7, 8, and 9